Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the historic ruling by the Supreme Court that Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue Parliament was unlawful. We'll be digging into the legal precedent set and the backlash from some in the Conservative Party. Plus, we'll be reviewing a radical Labour Party conference in Brighton, the Green Revolution that Jeremy Corbyn is undertaking taking and what to expect from the Tories' upcoming gathering in Manchester. I'm delighted to be joined by our legal correspondent Jane Croft, contributing editor David Allen Green, political correspondent Laura Hughes, chief political correspondent Jim Picard and columnist Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then please subscribe through the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning or send us a nice review. At 10.30am on Tuesday, British political and legal history was made. The Supreme Court delivered its ruling that Boris Johnson's proroguing of Parliament was unlawful. The 11 senior judges unanimously declared whether Parliament sits or not was in the purview of the court and that Mr Johnson had acted out of turn by recommending to the Queen that Parliament should be shut down for five weeks, notionally to introduce a new domestic legislative agenda, but actually to stymie further debate of Brexit. Speaker John Burko declared the Parliament would return on Wednesday and so it did with a statement from the PM and plenty of debate, including from some in the government who labelled the ruling a constitutional coup. So Jane Croft, let's begin. You were in court when this ruling was delivered and it really was absolutely astounding, a really landmark moment here because when we were talking about this last week on the podcast, we said that maybe the court would say it was judiciable, maybe the court would say it was wrong, but we were all very uncertain and really the ruling which came from Baroness Hale, who's head of the Supreme Court, just blew it all out of the water. Yeah, it really was extraordinary. I mean, it's very difficult to convey just how surprised people were. Because of the speed that this ruling was delivered, nobody, not any of the lawyers or parties, had seen what the court was going to decide. Sometimes in these cases, lawyers get embargoed copies, but nobody knew what the court was going to decide. And we even thought beforehand the court might just rule that this is non-justiciable, it's not within their remit. But they actually almost went for the nuclear option. Not only did they say it was justiciable, but they also said that the Prime Minister had acted unlawfully. And they said, you know, the effect upon the fundamentals of British democracy was extreme in sort of shutting down Parliament. The key thing I think that they said was that the court decided, and Lady Hale made this very clear, that the decision to advise the Queen to prorogue Parliament was unlawful because it had the effect of preventing the ability of Parliament to carry out its job of scrutinising the government. So not only did it declare it that this was unlawful, but she was absolutely clear in her ruling that this effectively meant Parliament has not been prorogued. And this was the unanimous judgment of all 11 justices. So she made it absolutely clear the ruling was incredibly easy to understand from a legal point of view. And she made it absolutely clear Parliament's still sitting. 
So, David Allen Green, when we sat here last week talking about it, you said that it was a very fine balance there. And I think one of the things that was most striking about this was how unanimous it was, because we always thought there was going to be some split and division of opinion between the Supreme Court justices. But as Jane said, the reason this thing was so surprising and amazing was the sheer weight of opinion behind it. Well, as I often say constitutional law at the moment is quite exciting and it's a bad thing for constitutional law to be this exciting. Now we've had a few days to look at the judgment. There are certain things which become more obvious with time. It's a unanimous judgment. That surprised everybody. And when you look at the judgment closely, you can see how they possibly managed to get all 11 on board. The judgment, as Jane has quite rightly pointed out, is about the effects of prorogation. It sidesteps any judicial findings as to the motives of the government in seeking the prorogation. Things which the Scottish Court of Session focused on, the undue intention of the government in seeking this prorogation. The Supreme Court quite cleverly got round that by saying, that might be important, but what's important first is let's look at the effects. And they lost parliamentary business. And it then said... Parliamentary supervision is important. Ability to legislate is important. If you are going to prorogue, and it is within the government's power to ask for a prorogation, prorogation still stands, it hasn't been abolished, but if the government does want to ask for Queen to prorogue, it's got to have a reasonable justification. In other words, the longer the prorogation, the more damage it inflicts upon parliamentary business, the greater that reason has to be, the better that reason has to be. And by which, that is how I think they managed to get all 11 on board, is by actually making the legal test about effects, not intentions. Jane, normally prorogation happens for a handful of days and it's a thing that happens all the time to allow a new Queen's speech and a new domestic legislative agenda. And when Mr Johnson talked about proroguing Parliament, that was the reason he publicly gave. But as David was just saying, the court said, well, in fact, we know that's not true because it was key to stymie the Uh, role of Parliament there. Just to correct you, the Supreme Court didn't find that to be the intention. What the Supreme Court found is that there had not been any explanation properly given. And all you had were certain internal documents which didn't quite add up. So Mm. unlike the Court of Session in Scotland, it didn't find that was the intention to stymie Parliament. What it found was it needed an explanation and there just wasn't one. Yeah, exactly. Lady Hale said there's no justification for taking action with such an extreme effect. No evidence has been put before the court why this was necessary. The only evidence they had was the memorandum from Nikki de Costa, a senior legal advisor to the government, and very few other documents. There was no sworn witness statement explaining why this was necessary. And normally prorogation is for four to six days, as the court found, not five weeks. So now that we know that prorogation is judicial, David, this means that this may not be the last time the Supreme Court will have to hear a case on this. So in terms of what this means for the court, how is this going to change its role in terms of when Parliament does and doesn't sit? Make a distinction here between form and substance. In form, this is a constitutional judgment. It is openly a constitutional judgment. It screams it that we are dealing with important constitutional issues That's what makes the judgment so wonderfully accessible. Past constitutional judgments are incredibly technical and you wouldn't know if it was a constitutional judgment if you'd read it. This isn't. This openly says we are dealing with big issues. But in substance, it's actually quite a small C conservative judgment. It doesn't expand judicial power in any significant way. What it does is says 
This is actually a matter for Parliament. Parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary accountability are the two principles which come out of this judgment. Nothing about judicial power. Parliament should be in charge and it's important that government is responsible and accountable to Parliament. So those commentators who have got very excited thinking that this is some sort of judicial overreach simply have neither read nor understood the judgment. It is a small c conservative one, significant all the same though. So Laura Hughes, when this judgment landed... As Jane said, Parliament was essentially declared unparoled and there was a bit of a scrabble in Westminster because nobody was really thinking this was coming. And Speaker John Burke came out quite quickly and said Parliament will return on Wednesday at 11.30. Tell us what's happened since then. Also the reaction from the government because we've had quite mixed messages here. We've had Jacob Rees-Mogg on the one side and Geoffrey Cox on the other side. Yes, yeah, so Jacob Rees-Mogg, Cabinet Minister, has described this as a constitutional coup. He was outraged. We saw all the Eurosceptics coming out in force to say that they thought this was inappropriate. And it feeds into this narrative they have of the liberal elites in London having a Remain agenda and seeking to stop Brexit. It was one of those days, though, I would add that it felt momentous and it was. But in terms of what has actually changed in terms of what happens to Brexit, nothing immediately happened. So the obvious question for opposition parties was, well, now what? If Boris Johnson gave the Queen a false justification for proroguing Parliament, what happens to him? And because Labour weren't really expecting this, the Liberal Democrats weren't the SNP, there wasn't an immediate plan to really do anything. There were calls for his resignation, but unsurprisingly, he chose not to resign. Why would he? And all eyes have been on the opposition parties and what they do with the extra days they have in Parliament, what legislative moves they could make that might have an impact on Brexit. But so far, nothing has actually changed for Boris Johnson and his Brexit plan. But of course, on the Labour benches, there was much joy and delight at this ruling because it showed Boris Johnson to have effectively done something unlawful. And that is a huge deal But what now? What next? Nothing has actually really come from this. Indeed. And in the House of Commons on Wednesday, there were several urgent questions to the Prime Minister and to the government about what happened from that ruling. And Mr Johnson had to fly back from New York early. The Labour Party conference ended a day early as well as MPs scrabbled back to Westminster. But David, just coming back to the two bits of response from the government. So Geoffrey Cox, who's the Attorney General, who had originally told Mr Johnson that this would be lawful to do this, he was quite respectful of the judgment, I would say, that he disagreed with it, but he would say respect it. You contrast that, as Laura said, with the words from Jacob Rees-Mogg, who told the Cabinet this was a constitutional coup, and the Prime Minister himself used very aggressive terms about it. Yes, the government has adopted the line that they are going to comply with the law and that they respect the judgment even if they disagree with it. That's a respectable in turn position to hold. The government has also been quite careful to try and avoid trying to discredit the motives of the judges. The best way the government should be able to deal with this is that it was a mistake which they shouldn't have made in the first place. It was an unforced mistake to try and overreach themselves with this prorogation. Had that not actually happened, we would probably not even have had the Ben Act because the Ben Act, while it was done with a sense of urgency because time was running out because of prorogation. So from a law and policy point of view, the government seems to have shot itself twice in the foot. It's now had the Ben Act inflicted against it and has lost its prorogation. Had it not been for this attempt at this prorogation, 
it may well be that parliamentary forces wouldn't have been able to combine into this rebel alliance to force Riverbend out. It's mind-blowingly self-defeating. So, Jane, this brings the question, as David mentioned, the Ben Act. This is legislation that was passed during a very brief period when Parliament was sitting in September to force Mr Johnson to extend Brexit if there's not a deal by the 19th of October. Now, the government is sort of playing two sides of this similar argument because this is where the legal question goes next, is will they comply with the Ben Act if there is no new Brexit deal from Brussels? Because on the one hand, Geoffrey Cox stood at the dispatch box on Wednesday and said, yes, we do obey the law, we will follow the law. But on the other hand, you've got Mr Johnson saying we are not going to extend and delay Brexit again. So how do those two things add up? And there's been a lot of talk from John Major and from others about loopholes there. Mm. Are we going to be heading back to the courts before this whole thing is over? Well, there is actually a new case that's just been lodged by Joe Morn, who brought the Scottish appeal this week in the Supreme Court, who basically has brought another case up in Scotland, which is all about whether or not if the Prime Minister does not comply with the Act, if no notification for an extension is produced by the deadline, there is talk of bringing the legal action to court and then potentially using something under Scottish law, I think it's no bill officium, whether or not a judge could actually then sign an extension letter and send it to the EU. So there's certainly more legal action afoot relating to the Ben Act. And what do you make about this, David? You've been tweeting and writing about the potential of the Ben Act. Now, obviously, we should clarify, if Mr Johnson gets a new Brexit deal and manages to pass it through a meaningful vote before the 19th of October, then it doesn't kick in. But the politics suggest there is no new Brexit deal likely to emerge, so this Act will kick in. You have to take this in stages. The Ben Act is an Act of Parliament. That has immense legal significance. One legal significance it has is that it is unlawful for ministers to do anything which is to circumvent or frustrate that act. That is a principle known as the Padfield principle. It's one of the most important principles in English constitutional law. And if, for example, the government sent a side letter with the extension request saying, oh, no, we don't really mean it, that would be unlawful under the Padfield principle. If they try to use an order in council to try and circumvent the Ben Act. This is John Major's suggestion. What John Major said can be construed in two ways. One way is that they should just use the ordering council generally to circumvent the Act. That wouldn't be lawful. And it would be so quick of a court to strike it down. This isn't advanced law which needs to go to the Supreme Court. This is very basic constitutional law 101. And so any attempt to circumvent or frustrate the Ben Act is going to legally fail. The question then becomes, well, if we can't circumvent it or frustrate it, Can we amend it? Can we repeal it? Suggestion has been made that you could use emergency powers legislation, the so-called Civil Contingencies Act. Again, that is really a non-starter. Although that does grant incredible powers in certain exceptional circumstances, the thing you're trying to do has to have a rational connection with the emergency. And in any case, it has to be brought promptly before Parliament for ratification. Again, can't sit. So what we have here is legally nonsensical. There are problems, however, with the Ben Act. If, as you pointed out, if there is a deal agreed by the 21st of October, then there's no need to ask for an extension. But if for some reason in those 10, 11 days, that doesn't get executed properly, or the legals aren't done properly, then we could actually still end with a no-deal Brexit on the 31st, even though we've got the Ben Act, because Johnson has got past the 19th or 21st of October deadline. So the Ben Act... You can't get rid of it very easily, but it isn't foolproof either. 
And of course, the Ban Act is about requesting an extension, not getting an extension. And there's all sorts of reasons why the EU might not give that. But that's a political thing as opposed to a legal thing. One thing that's very clear from the events this week, Laura, is that Westminster is slowly getting angrier and angrier. And the response to the Supreme Court ruling, as you said, was divided straight down those lines where leavers were saying these judges were biased remainers, although there's, of course, no proof for that whatsoever. And then at the same time, there was this debate in Parliament about the ruling where the Prime Minister who'd got straight off a plane from New York, and it was honestly one of the worst evenings I can remember in the House of Commons. It was so intemperate and both sides were increasingly angry with each other. This came to a boiling point about some comments the Prime Minister made about Joe Cox. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it in the House of Commons and I know he was very tired and he was very frustrated, but there were a number of female Labour MPs who stood up and said, Prime Minister, you need to tone down your language. You need this is the Surrender Act. He calls yeah. the Ben legislation. The ben legislation, the Surrender Act, and that invokes, you know, words like traitor. And female MPs were standing up telling him to moderate his language because the death threats and the abuse that they are getting is just intolerable. And one MP invoked the memory of Joe Cox, who was killed by a far-right man. And his response was, I've never heard such humbug. He suggested the best way to honour the life of Joe Cox was to get Brexit done. She, of course, was a Remain campaigner. And the response from Labour MPs was enormous. There was an urgent question the following day. Boris chose not to come to the chamber. He sent a very junior minister to answer on his behalf. We haven't had an apology. And it just reflects the mood. It reflects the situation a lot of MPs are finding themselves in. But for Boris Johnson, it it fits into his campaign, his narrative of the people versus the parliament. You know, it's playing out on the streets and the real life consequences of that are MPs getting these death threats. And it is a very toxic environment in there at the moment. So ultimately, we're at at the end of this week with regards to the Supreme Court. This is a big moment. And as we said, the next fight is going to be at the Ben Act. But within terms of Brexit, we're once again in this holding pattern. And we have to assume once Conservative Party conference is out of the way and Boris has given some no doubt tub thumping speeches where he'll attack the judges and the courts and that sort of thing. Then there's this 10 day period where he might be able to get in there, strike some kind of deal before the council, before the Ben Act kicks in. But generally, the dynamic suggests that really we're not going anywhere very fast on this. No, and his language frustrated a lot of MPs. Lisa Nandia, a Labour MP from a Leave seat who has shown some willingness to try and get a deal done, said that the language that he used didn't help. He's really annoyed everyone that he needs to try and get on side with, with the way that he's acted in the House of Commons. So, no, it doesn't look more likely. And I don't think the EU you think that a deal is going to come. I think the EU believe an extension is very, very likely at this point. Lawyers and judges are used to being unpopular, more used than journalists are. We are unafraid of the fact that Johnson is going to blame the lawyers, put courts against people and whatever. Or because somebody is showing off because they want to break the law, it doesn't mean that the law is going to step back and not do anything. We do realise, the judges and the lawyers realise that we may well be being gamed here, being forced to be part of this narrative, but the law will still be upheld. And if Johnson, etc., attempt to circumvent or frustrate the Ben Act, then there will be a court order stopping them. It may well be that they want that. And so they can say to their constituency, oh, we were going to leave, but we were stopped by all those pesky judges. The judges will be unafraid to do that. The other big political event this week was Labour Party's annual conference in Brighton. As ever, it brought some news and dramatic events, but the biggest drama actually occurred before the conference even began. 
After we finished recording last Friday's podcast, it turned out Labour had an NEC meeting and John's landsman, who's a key ally of Jeremy Corbyn, casually suggested they abolish the deputy leadership position and get rid of Tom Watson, which overshadowed really most of the conference, as well as yet more debates on Brexit and potentially having a big green revolution. So, Jim Picard, I don't know what number Labour conference this is for you, but what did you make of the whole event and what was your summary of where we're at after it? It was a very interesting conference. And I think, as you say, the big news events were not things that the Labour leadership ostensibly wants to talk about. They want to talk about being on an election footing and having all these policies which they think would be very exciting if only the general public knew about them. But instead, we had the move by Landsman against Tom Watson, which you just mentioned. We also had the announcement about the resignation of Andrew Fisher, which was quite significant because he's a kind of little understated red-haired guy who's not on the newspapers, but he is incredibly influential inside the Corbyn project. He's one of the last person to have been there in the original leadership team that ran in 2015. And as the head of policy, he was responsible for the 2017 manifesto. And he was someone who, despite being a true believer, MPs across the piece quite liked him. And so it was quite a loss, that one. And it sent out a bit of a signal about morale, because you remember he said these things about There was a memo the Sunday Times got hold of where he said he was disappointed by the total lack of professionalism. Basically, the civil war, it sounded like, inside the leader's office. But you had all this grabbing all the attention. Then we also had the war over Brexit as well, which, again, Jeremy Corbyn just about managed to keep control of the process. But in terms of the general feeling that the public will have got, which is, is this a party that is really kind of focused on running Britain, sorting things out? Does Jeremy Corbyn look competent? they look united the answer has to be no so robert shimsley a lot of the stuff that came out of this was radical and that was one of the things that surprised me most about the conference which was curtailed because of the supreme court decision because jeremy corbyn's been leader of the labor party since 2015 and they've become increasingly more radical but this year felt like a big step there were two motions that went through the conference that struck me one was on private schools. Now, Labour's always campaigned against private schools in one form or another, but this was a pretty radical conference policy which said not only did it want to remove their charitable status and have caps on how many private school pupils could go to university, they also wanted to take away the assets and buildings of private schools. So that was very controversial. And the second thing was the Green New Deal motion. There's a lot of debate between the members, the MPs and the trade unions about this, but they actually ended up passing the more radical version of that motion, which said net zero carbon emissions by 2030, which we know a lot of people in the union movement think is totally unachievable. It was a very curious conference because it was a combination of insecurity and ultra-confidence rolled into one. You could sense, as Jim was saying, I think on his now nationalised BT phone, you could sense the fear of what's coming after Jeremy Corbyn, a sense among his own faithful followers that this could be his last conference as leader, certainly if we go into an election and lose it. People worry about what's coming next and you view the move against Tom Watson in that light. It's an attempt to secure the succession, the Brexit debate, again, that Jim mentioned over what the party's policy would be and whether it would essentially become a full Remain party having promised a referendum was turned into a debate about loyalty to Jeremy Corbyn. And in the end, his side won that debate by saying this is a test of loyalty, Jeremy Corbyn, because we know that all the people who are demanding Remain are running a proxy fight using Brexit against him. So on the one hand, you had all of that. And on the other hand, you had exactly as you said, these 
remarkable raft of policies. The private school one, it's not even clear that it's legal to appropriate the assets of private schools in the way that's being talked about. Jeremy Corbyn announced a plan for a general medicines agency to essentially make generic drugs if they can't buy drugs for the NHS cheap enough, essentially just take away the R&D patent rights of the drug companies that make them. And then biggest of all, and one that I think would have got a lot more attention but for the Supreme Court ruling was, as you say, what they call the Green New Deal. It's very slightly fudged because they say they want a path towards net zero by 2030. But even so, most people regard 2030 as quite staggeringly ambitious and the scale of cost and dislocation that would be caused to do this. I mean, you're talking about shutting down many very energy intensive industries. You're talking about getting rid of fossil fuels in the next 10 years we're talking about here. The scale of this is extraordinary. If you think of what the government's proposed, which is net zero by 2050, that's said to cost a trillion pounds over the course of the pledge, one to two percent of GDP. Labour's proposals would essentially be spending one to two percent of GDP every year. The most important thing that happened here was that it wasn't the leadership that was putting forward these most radical ideas. So there were lots of announcements by the leadership about providing loans for people to buy electric cars, the new pharmaceutical generic state-owned company that they would set up. So there were reasonably radical things being announced by the leadership. But I think this was the moment when Jeremy Corbyn's talk about democratizing the party is actually happening. And the leadership is looking at this with some degree of trepidation. So if you take the example of the private schools, and you were saying, Robert, that it may actually be illegal to expropriate the private school's assets. This was what John McDonnell was saying to them behind closed doors on Saturday and begging them to water down the motion. And they just ignored him. I think that's true, Jim. But I also think that on the Green proposal, the leadership was comfortable with most of what went through. And I mean, I'm going to argue with you. No, how dare you? They had they had ten hours of meetings behind closed doors over the weekend where the GMB were trying to water it down and take out the 2030 phrase. Rebecca Long Bailey sat. He's the shadow business secretary. Sat through all those meetings and didn't express one view one way or another. She was unable to push the argument either for 2030 or against 2030. And if you saw Jeremy Corbyn on the Mars show on Sunday, he sounded quite sceptical about it. He was kind of saying, well, it's all really good, but you know, is the science there? And if we can get to 2030, then great. But, and then lastly, you take the Europe policy. Firstly, yes, Corbyn, with the help of the Union Brothers, did manage to quash the remaining CLPs, constituency Labour parties, but only just... And then on another Brexit policy, which is free movement of people, the delegates voted for that, which is something that does mean that the leadership is going to have to change tack again on Brexit and concede that the only policy that fits with that, if they do end up down the line continuing to back Brexit, would be a kind of Norway plus model. So I mean, just the dem- democratisation, whether you like it or not, is something that we saw in full flow in Brighton. So just briefly on that, Jim, just go back to the Brexit thing, because this is obviously, regardless of all the other policies which will may play a role in Labour's future manifesto, people like Emily Thornberry, Keir Starmer, John McDonnell, who have spoken out about Remain and being in favour of Remain, they were somewhat obviously disappointed that the conference didn't go that extra step further. But I think Keir Starmer, for example, was quite pleased that Labour is now so fully on board with the referendum that they've said if we get into power, within three months we'll have a renegotiation and within six months we'll have another referendum. So even though they didn't win this time, it does feel the general trajectory is still towards Labour backing Remain, but that's not necessarily going to help them if we have an election in the next six weeks, two months, whatever. The sort of Kafkaesque elements of this policy is that if you talk to anyone on either side of the debate within Labour, they say, well, yeah, in the circumstances that we win an election and then we renegotiate 
a deal. And then we hold this special conference where we have a vote of delegates as to what the position should be. It's completely inconceivable that we would be anything other than remain because the vast majority of the delegates will be remainers. So they all know that is the position they would end up in that hypothetical situation. They just don't want to admit it right now because they're terrified, as we always say, of annoying those three million Labour voters who back leave in 2016 and that they've always been petrified of leaving them. I do think, Jim, this goes back against your point about the degree of democratisation within the Labour Party because the Labour Party is actually in the position that the leader's office wanted it to be given the options available to it. And, of course, what always happens in all political parties, but especially in Labour, is that the disenfranchised group are hugely in favour of democratisation. Then they get into power and they find that democracy is not all it's cracked up to be and they start shutting things down with compositing. Now, just to look forward to what's going to come this weekend, Robert, which is the Tory party conference begins in Manchester. And this is still going ahead despite the fact Parliament is sitting because, as we were talking about earlier, there were lots of debates in the House of Commons following the Supreme Court ruling. And one of them was to have a short three-day conference recess, which traditionally MPs always nod through. Labour didn't do that because they said until Boris Johnson has avoided a no-deal Brexit, Parliament will be sitting throughout. So it's going to be potentially farcical scenes of potentially of Labour ambush the government with some kind of vote or emergency debate on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But the Tories are going ahead. There might be fewer ministers and MPs than normal, but they're very much trying to have business as usual. What are you expecting from the conference? I think in some ways it's going to be a very, very interesting conference. I mean, last year, the big story was they were all waiting for Boris. They were trying to chuck the Brexit deal and get rid of Theresa May. Now they've got Boris and they've chucked the Brexit deal, except that maybe he's going to get a different one. And I think there will be a sense of nervousness among the Conservatives. Most of the people who go to party conference are going to be fairly happy with Boris Johnson. They're going to be comfortable with the Brexit line. But there is going to be this sense of unease among them that, what if we've got this wrong? Do we really want to be the party that's pushing the rule of law aside? Do we really want to be throwing out people like Nick Soames and David Gork and Philip Hammond? Are we really becoming that narrow party? Most conservative activists are not unhappy with the position the government's taken. But I think there will be that concern. And that what I think will be interesting to see on the fringes are, because of course what happens in the conference hall is all just panto. None of it is important in the way that it is in the Labour Party. What I think will be interesting to see is which of two themes dominates the fringes. One will be the Brexit hardliners trying to push Boris to stick with what they'll call a clean Brexit and no deal. And the other are the sort of former One Nation conservatives who are saying, come on, we've just got to get ourselves together again. We've got to tone down the rhetoric. Once Brexit's through, we want to bring ourselves and our country back together again. And this isn't helping. And I think it will be very interesting to see where Boris Johnson himself lands on that when he gives his leader speech, because there's no doubt he sees himself still as a One Nation conservative who's just trying to drive through Brexit. The criticism that many make is that in attempting to drive through Brexit, he is fracturing the One Nation consensus that the Conservative Party is built upon. Because, Jim, it seems quite likely Boris will go for his people versus parliament shtick once again. And as we saw with the angry exchanges in the Commons this week, he's not resiling from his use of the word surrender, attacking parliament, attacking opposition MPs. So in a way, whereas you had the unusual sight of Jeremy Corbyn very much defending all those things, which are normally sort of things that conservatives love to talk about, institutions, the rule of law, or that kind of stuff, things are going to be a little bit reversed then. And What do you think there's going to be to look forward to? And do you think there's any chance of Labour springing any surprises on the Tories while they're all in Manchester? Going back to your first point, I think it's true that a lot of Conservatives are uncomfortable with what they've seen this week. They're embarrassed to see their Prime Minister 
totally found to have been against the law by the Supreme Court. And then, of course, we had that moment two nights ago where particularly the comment from Paula Sheriff where she was saying we need to all calm down our language and remember what happened to Joe Cox and dangerous language does have consequences. And the Prime Minister said this is all humbug. You know, people were appalled by that. And in the 22 committee of backbench Tory MPs, which occurred the next morning, there were at least four or five MPs who tried to get reassurances from Boris Johnson. Surely you think we should be toning down the language Prime Minister, people like Tracy Crouch, and not particularly rebellious MPs asking these questions. Richard Graham, I think, was another one. And he did try to reassure them on that front behind closed doors. And he did turn down the request from, I think it was Julian Lewis, Tory right winger, saying we should have a pact with Nigel Farage. And Boris Johnson said, well, the only problem with that is we'd get new voters, but then others would walk away. So trying to sound a little bit one nation, but being very, very unapologetic about this language of surrender. And, you know, it's only one step from talking about surrender to then talking about betrayal and all this very unpleasant language which we've seen emerge. You would have thought the Prime Minister might be the one to be showing some leadership on this, but politically for him, he thinks this is what's going to polarise the country politically in his favour. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jane, David, Laura, Robert and Jim for joining. In the meantime, if you enjoyed FT Politics and would like to find out more from the FT, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Owen McSweeney. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.